You are listening to. You are listening to. You are listening to. Rural Voices, the Rural Youth Europe podcast. Hello and welcome back to Rural Voices, the Rural Youth Europe podcast. This episode is part one of two episodes focused on the LGBTI community in rural areas. We're going to be hearing some personal stories. We will discuss what we could all be doing to help create positive conversations and ultimately create safe spaces within our organisations. In this episode, I firstly speak to MEP Kim Van Sparentak. She talks about LGBTI rights in the EU and how MEPs like herself are working hard to make sure the LGBTI community have a voice at a European level. We need more young people in politics. We need more queer people in politics. We need more young women in politics. And at some point, um, well, if you do that a lot, then people start looking at you and they wonder why aren't you running for politics as a young queer woman. I also speak to Johan Gunnarsson who has been involved with Swedish 4H for a huge amount of his life. He's incredibly passionate about the visibility of LGBTI role models in rural areas as well as discussing how to be a good ally to the community. Uh, I thought I was the only gay kid in my area and almost in the entire world, young kids need someone to look up to. Because if, if no one comes out in rural areas, they have no one to look up to and they think they are alone. And finally, I'm joined by Patricia Pringle, Group 4 representative for Eastern Europe on the board of Rural Youth Europe. She plays this month's Campfire Stories game. Hello Europe, this is Finland calling. Hello Europe, this is Northern Ireland calling. Hello Europe. This is Estonia calling. But first, let's hear what happened when I caught up with Member of the European Parliament, Kim van Sparentak. You are listening to... You are listening to... You are listening to... Rural Voices. The Rural Youth Europe podcast. Hi Kim, welcome to the Rural Voices podcast. I really, really appreciate you giving up your time to have a chat. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Can you start by explaining what your job as a member of the European Parliament, what does it entail and, you know, what are you getting up to on a day-to-day basis? Yes, so um, my job uh, as a member of the European Parliament is to represent the people of Europe. Um, and um, we do that um, not based on um, which country you're from, but uh, on which political group you're a member of. And I'm a member of the Green Party. And um, I'm a, a member of um, the Internal Market Committee, where I focus a lot on digitization, um, AI, for example, but also how do we deal with uh, with Facebook? Um, I'm a member also of the Social Affairs Committee, where I focus a lot on um, digital work. So, for example, how do we deal with platform workers uh, and Uber riders and and delivery riders? And um, uh, uh, next to that, I'm a member of the LGBTI intergroup, and there I focus uh, a lot on the rights of LGBTI people. And on a day-to-day basis, I do a lot of different things, and I never know in the beginning of my day what the what what uh, my day will actually look like. Um, but I, you know, I have conversations with people about several different topics, either MEPs, journalists, but also. Uh, NGOs. It's one of the most diverse and fun jobs you can imagine. Yeah, I bet. And you mentioned there about the LGBTI intergroup. Um, We're sat on this Zoom call and you've got the pride flag behind you. Clearly, LGBTI issues are incredibly important to you. 
Can you explain what the LGBTI intergroup is there for and what does it do? Yes, so um, we have several intergroups in the European Parliament, but the LGBTI intergroup is the biggest intergroup uh, with the most members. It consists of both actually members of the LGBTI community and uh, allies. And um, it is um, a cross-party group of, uh, of MEPs that are, um, you know, all engaged in a way with the LGBTI community. And um, we get together and, you know, come up with, um, I don't know, letters to send um, to the European Commission when something uh, goes wrong or if we want to call for better legislation, for example, from the European Commission. And because we are all members of this intergroup, um, we all already know that we have a big backing when we work on LGBTI issues. And that's why it's very important. And next to that is also a very important uh, point of resource for us. So when we are working on a certain topic where we are wondering, hey, whether there is an, a special LGBTI dimension um, in it, um, then we can also ask uh, for resources from the intergroup. Was championing LGBTI rights and being part of things like this intergroup, was that part of the reason why you wanted to become an MEP in the first place? Is that part of the picture of why you wanted to get into politics? Well, I'm... I consider myself really an activist. Um, I've been uh, engaged in climate activism, LGBTI activism, feminism um, for quite a while now. And, um, and I, I from, from really the beginning, I realized, um, you know, you need to also uh, be in politics to, to get things to change. Because um, when you're an activist, I also worked for NGOs uh, as, a, as a campaigner. You know, at some point you're all the time talking with the people that are in the end in the room making the decision. Um, and then on, on the other hand, um, I also um, have been advocating for a long time that we need more young people in politics. We need more queer people in politics. We need more young women in politics. Um, and I've been supporting a lot of people. And at some point, um, well, if you do that a lot, then people start looking at you and they wonder, why aren't you running for politics as a young queer woman? Um, and then I was at some point like, yeah, why, why am I not running? And then I, I did. And um, I, just, I thought, why, why not? If I like, I'll just give it a try. And um, here I am. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's so inspiring. And I, I know there will be people listening who are inspired by that and maybe thinking about wanting to get into politics themselves. Now, I'm aware this next question is a bit of a monster of a question, but LGBTI rights in the EU, do we have a long way to go? You know, where are we at with making sure we have equality when it comes to LGBTI rights? Yeah, that's a very, very hard question indeed, um, <laughs> because um, it really depends um, where, you look, where you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and also like the progress is very different per country. Um, but what we do see is, you know, in general, we have a basis of, you know, there's, there's not a, there's no country, um, where being, uh, LGBTI is illegal. Let's, let's start with that and let's be happy with that because there's still a lot of countries in the world where that is the case. Um, that doesn't mean that we have equal rights yet for the LGBTI community. We're actually far from that, but it really depends which country you're looking at. Um, every year, the uh, ILGA, the International Lesbian and Gay Association Europe, they 
um, present a rainbow map. And on this map, you can see um, the progress that is, has been uh, done uh, on um, legislation and in general uh, on LGBTI rights in Europe. And um, if you look at the map, you see that, for example, Malta is really great um, already. They have uh, quite good legislation. Um, the Netherlands, where I'm from, uh, has always been uh, quite ahead. We were the first country to introduce equal marriage, for example. So those are countries that are do already doing really well. But then if you look at other countries um, where, such as Poland, uh, Hungary, Italy, um, these are countries where um, it's really not, not great yet. And also in, in some countries we see um, that it's even backsliding the rights that we have. And um, what you're actually seeing right now, especially during the pandemic, um, for a long time, progress has been made. Like every time, every year, there would be some progress in in most countries in a way. And uh, during the pandemic, it stalled. Like there was basically, if you if you really look at it, there's not really progress that has been made. So that is worrying because you know until we have full equal rights for everyone, we're we're not equal yet. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned Poland there I think I think for those of us living in rural areas and small towns it has been particularly concerning hearing what's happening in Poland with their so-called LGBT free zones what's the EU doing to support those communities yes so um just maybe to briefly explain it for people who don't know um there are certain regions in Poland that have declared themselves LGBTI free zones, um, whatever that really may mean. Um, in, in practice, it means um, that, um, you know, you're not really allowed to talk about it in schools, for example, or in public um, uh, libraries. Um, and um, uh, it also means that for the people who live there, you know, there's just your government is basically a fueling hate against you. And in certain of these areas, we've also heard that, for example, uh, vans with uh, with speakers on top uh, screaming things against the LGBTI community um, were, were driving around. So that is the situation that we had there. Um, and at some point, it was a very big part of the country. I think five quite big regions that had declared themselves LGBTI free. And there was immediately a very strong uh, reaction from the European Union, but like in words. And, you know, it always takes a while before things actually happen. Um, so what the European Parliament did, um, we can't propose legislation, we can call for legislation and we can improve legislation. Um, and what the European Parliament did um, was to declare through resolution the European Union an LGBTI freedom zone. So that was um, to show, because this is also how I feel uh, my role as a member of the European Parliament. Um, people um, in these regions, they're not represented by their local government and also not by their national government, but at least they have another layer where there are people fighting for their rights. And that is the European layer. And that is a role that I take very seriously. Um, so that is what the European Parliament did. And the European Commission, they actually started um, uh, stopping funding to go to these regions. Um, and it started just with small uh, smaller budgets for for certain cities that had declared themselves LGBTI free zones, um, but in the end it became a very big proportion also of the recovery fund, so the COVID recovery fund, um, and that means that now um, almost all these LGBTI free zones have backtracked and um, have have now changed themselves into I don't know, not LGBTI free zones or something. Um, but yeah, of course, damage has already been been done. 
to the community there and and the hate has been you know fueled there but you know we see that at least the european commission is now doing that and on a broader scale because both hungary and poland have, have also declared even more um, things that are very problematic for the LGBTI community. Uh, for example, there's a propaganda law that's proposed in uh, in Hungary, which is similar to the Russian law, where you're not allowed to talk about LGBTI stuff or, or show it to kids under 18. Um, and um, the European Commission is just blocking any funding going now to Poland and Hungary, which I think is um, a very good way of showing that this is not how we deal with, uh, with people in Europe. Yeah, definitely. And when when you talk about being LGBTI you know in a lot of the discussions I've been having recently you know there's always references to community family pride and that's clearly what certain MEPs like yourself are trying to achieve within the EU but what about those of us living in rural areas where there may not be a visible LGBTI community that may already feel isolated, regardless of a pandemic which has made the whole world feel isolated. What is the EU doing to reach out to these people? Um, Well, I think what the EU does, and I think that's an important thing, is that we give quite some funding for projects for young people and for LGBTI uh, people. That's um, uh, That's also funding that really is you know good to to get um so i think that is one of the very important things that the eu can really do is you know provide help with programs um and make sure that um that young people um can can really you know set up their own projects and their own their do their own initiatives um to you know reach out more and i think another thing and that is i think not per se perhaps a political thing but i think you know we have to be more connected. Like now I'm talking more as a member of the LGBTI community than as a member of the parliament. But, you know, um, I think what happened um, in Hungary uh, this year was one of the best examples I've seen so far where um, Budapest Pride, which is a very big pride. And, you know, in Budapest, there is a very big LGBTI community and people feel pretty much safe when they're walking on the streets in Budapest. Um, and Budapest Pride just went to a smaller town um, to um, have a pride there. And it's like, yeah, you're always coming to us to feel free, but we want you to feel free in your own place as well. And that's why we're coming to you. And I think that is such a beautiful example of how we actually have to deal with pride. And I think also in the Netherlands, I'm from, um, from a very um, rural area as well myself. Um, I don't live there anymore, but um, you know, we have pink Saturdays every year. Another city has a pink Saturday and, um, um, this year for the first time or coming year, um, for the first time there will be a pink Saturday in my province. And, you know, it's, it, it is, it creates, creates some friction. It's like, Oh, why, why, why are they coming here? Um, so to say, but, um, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's an initiative, um, by the LGBTI community from there. And it's and it's the way where you can see each other. And I think, you know, that is that is the power of Pride is that you can walk around on the streets as you want to, feeling free because you're, you know, you have the the power of being in a big number. And um, having that, um, I, I I wish to have that to everyone everywhere. And um, that's why we we have to, you know, not only go to our uh, more safe, progressive islands, but uh, have uh, little prides everywhere. 
Yes. Yes. Little prides everywhere. I love that. That's the way forward. Um, to kind of wrap up this interview, what what would be your advice to rural youth organisations listening to this, you know, to, to help them start to create those safe spaces for the LGBTI community? Well, I think step one is always recognising that LGBTI people exist. I think that is always step one. I think that's also, you know, the power of the gay straight alliances, for example, that we you have all over high schools. Um, it is not about, you know, um, creating a space where everyone has to be extremely flamboyant and queer and glitter and unicorns and everything. It's about acknowledging the fact that there are LGBTI people and that we want to create a safe space for them. Um, so having the conversation about it is a first is, is a very important first step. And um, I think, secondly, um, you know, just just think of um, what kind of conversations you have in general. Be 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 aware of you know the kind of perhaps jokes you make that you don't even consider that might be a like something that that might be painful for someone who considers themselves as queer um so just just having a first conversation i think about that would already be extremely important and also when you hear someone making a homophobic or transphobic joke say something about it and just because and and i think that is actually also really the role of the ally to say, hey, why are you saying that? Like, you know, LGBTIs are people are also people. Why are why are you making fun of them? Um, I think by just starting with these little steps, that already gives people that perhaps are in the LGBTI community and perhaps not out, for example, they feel that they are welcome when when these kind of conversations start happening. And I I would say that is my first uh, advice. Thank you so much, Kim, for your time this afternoon. It's been fascinating to hear how the EU is supporting the LGBTI community. And I really wish you good luck in everything you wish to achieve during your time as an MEP. Thank you very much and uh, very happy to contribute to this uh, good project. You are listening to... You are listening to... You are listening to... Rural Voices. The Rural Youth Europe podcast. Hi Johan, welcome to Rural Voices. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm surprised our paths haven't crossed in the past, if I'm honest. What Rural Youth Europe events have you been to in the past? I went to Northern Ireland for the rally and and I've been to Scotland. How did you find those events in Northern Ireland and Scotland? Uh, I was tired all the time. Uh, no, it was really funny. I've always enjoyed uh, traveling to see other cultures and like rarely have been those experiences where you go to one place, but it, at the same time you go to many places. You see people from all around the world and you really, you really get to know them. And you were at those events representing Swedish 4H, I assume being a member of Swedish 4H, has that been a big part of your life? Yeah, since I was seven or six years old. It's always been a big part of my life. Uh, I was never one of those guys who played soccer or something like that. I played it when I was younger, when I realized I had 4-H. I've always been interested in animals, farming and uh, all that kind of things. And they had a 4-H farm that we have in Sweden uh, in my small town, um, one hour outside of Gothenburg in Sweden, uh, where I spent one hour. I spent there one night a week for some years. Uh, and then I was 
chosen to be on the board when I was like 11 or 12 to be like a representative of the youth and kids to like engage me to be a part of the board. And where you grew up, would you describe that as a particularly rural area? Uh, I think it was a rural area. When I was when I grew up, I didn't thought it was a rural area because we had more, more, more rural areas outside of my town. Uh, my town, I think we have about 1,900 people, 1,800 people, so it's a pretty small place. Yeah, and I lived there until I was 21. And at what point growing up did you start becoming aware of your sexuality? And was the LGBTI community something you were ever familiar with growing up? No, no. I thought I was the only gay kid in my area and almost in the entire world. This was before Wi-Fi, before almost before internet, and I didn't realize it was other people like me. I've always known I'm gay. I usually ask those straight people asking a question like, when did you realize you were gay? And I ask them, when did you realize you were <laughs> <Yeah>. gay? <laughs> so so I've, I've always known, uh, but I didn't realize, I didn't realize, realize until I was 24 when I came out. So I was a pretty late bloomer, I call myself. And did you think that growing up as a gay man in a rural area that at some point you were going to need to move to a city? Yeah. It was like, I, I cannot live open here because of those prejudices who, who are existing in rural areas. Then it's a really big question. I think it's better now because it's a new, new generation, social media and everything. Um, but I think it's better now. Um, so do you think that, you know, little Johan's growing up now in rural areas, you you do think that it's it's easier for them now? I hope so. But I, I know it's not the truth because I know everyone is struggling. I know every gay or LGBT people I'm asking, everyone has a hard time coming out. Everyone. Even if you're living in a big city or rural area, I think almost everyone has a struggle because it's a topic of identity. It's not only who you are, it's like it's who you are in the society. It's like a bigger thing than choosing a work, if you compare them. What do you think needs to change? I think it's a question of generation. Uh, I think so, or maybe I hope so. I think if many more are talking about it and making making statements to make the society equal, I think that is the uh, the solution. And I think, for example, in rural areas, young kids need someone to look up to. Because if if no one comes out in rural areas, they have no one to look up to and they think they are alone. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've only recently in the news had uh, the story that the first professional footballer um, has come out as gay. Oh, crazy. Yeah, exactly. And it all just comes back down to that idea of role models, doesn't it? And hopefully it will lead to, to more people feeling comfortable enough to come out. Let's talk about being LGBT and in 4H. Did you always feel like being so involved in 4H in Sweden? Was that providing you with a safe space to be yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Because I know many people who are engaging or being active in Swedish 4H, they, many of them don't belong anywhere else. We have this equality plan uh, that is uh, uh, saying that everyone is welcome in Swedish 4H, regarding of 
sexual orientation, sexual expression, gender expression, age, religion, um, function, body function, everything, and everyone is welcome. So we, we have that. Uh, our highest board have decided that everyone is welcome. And clearly that is loud and clear and, and that is the case. But like you say, you didn't have those role models to look up to growing up. So what would you like organisations like 4H and Young Farmers, what could they be doing to better support the LGBTI community? I think it's not not only up to us LGBT people, but it's up to the straight people talking up as well. They have, they have a big um, big role in this as well. They have to be inclusive. They have to say everyone is welcome. And uh, I don't care about sexual identity, sexual orientation or anything. And, and being inclusive. I think those almost those role models are even more important than, than us LGBT people. And would you say it's just talking about it? Because there'll be people listening to this for sure that will be thinking, how can I be a better ally? What's your advice to them? I think being open that you are open to sexual orientation, LGBT people. Talking about it, maybe share something on social media, be open with that you are inclusive. And especially leaders who is seeing young kids um, because you, you don't know, I, I always say it's like well, one of ten are LGBT. So if, if you have a group of 100 people at your camps, ten of them are LGBT. You don't know who, you don't know, you don't know why and who, uh, which one of the LGBT plus they are. But they are there. Even if you were in Sweden, UK, US, Slovenia, they are everywhere. We are everywhere. We have taken over the world. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Um, for for anyone listening, thinking this is great, but the members that I deal with and are communicating to are super young. You know, what's your mm. response to that? How early do we need to be having these conversations? For example, I was gay when I was one yeah. years old, and I was yeah. gay when I was 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it don't change because I, I know even even if you're one, maybe if you if you are kissing, if I was kissing a boy at kindergarten or daycare, the teacher have to be open about it. It is not nothing strange. And to kind of wrap up the interview, for for any young person who might be listening to this, who maybe struggling with their sexuality, you know, who may be living in a rural area and don't have the likes of you as a role model. What is your advice to them? I think I want to say to everyone that you are important. You have the right to be yourself, regardless where you grew up. Um, and be, be yourself, be brave. And I think everyone should come out in their own, uh, their own speed. You don't have to come out. If you don't want to come out, you don't have to. But I think I think it's important to come out because you can you cannot be yourself one hundred percent until you come out comes out. And I, and I think for if you're talking about organizations, um, I think many organizations have like projects about LGBT. You have like Pride Weeks or something that that is very important. I know many forage farms have been to Pride Week and go into the Pride parades and such. But I think it's more important to include LGBT in the everyday topics. 
yeah exactly it's it's a lot more than just changing the color of your logo for one month of the year and i think also i would like to tell young kid you don't have to be a special way just because you're lgbt and you and you you are not your sexual orientation you're more than that you are a name and of course you can be whoever you are what a perfect note to end the interview thank you so much johan for sharing that with us at the start of the interview you said you thought you were the only gay kid in the whole world because you didn't have any role models and i hope you realize that you are now a role model yourself and there'll be people listening who will majorly appreciate that i hope so you are listening to you are listening to you are listening to rural voices the rural youth europe podcast Hi Patricia, welcome to the podcast, our newest board member, it's your first time. It is, hi Nan, it's nice to see you. Um, In this episode we are talking about LGBTI inclusion, how important is it for you as a leader in Latvian 4H as well as here in Rural Youth Europe that you are a strong ally to the LGBT community? It really does mean a lot to me because funny enough I live... uh with a person who is bisexual as well and then I have a lot of friends who is queers, uh, trans. It means so much because you know everyone should be understood as they are and I know people who who just can't accept it. So it hurts when you hear even some of your friends when you say that your friend is like you know not straight and there you see their attitude how it changes so i'm really glad that i hope with these stories we're gonna change it absolutely now you are here with a job to do today to play this episode's campfire stories game we've got three stories from three different people from across europe but one of them is telling a lie and you need to guess which one is that lie understood Yep, gotcha. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Are you feeling confident? Not at all. <laughs> I feel that I'm definitely going to fail, but like, we can try. Yeah, we can try. That's what we're here to do. Okay, let's first up hear from Emma from Finland. Hello Europe, this is Finland calling. My name is Emma Ilmanen and this is my story. We had an Erasmus Plus exchange in Kosovo and our way back home was quite interesting. We had to change a plane in Istanbul and the first plane was late. There was also Kosovo's national team traveling with us. When we got to Istanbul we had to go through a security check and of course we didn't have any water after that. And one lady from the staff was trying to make us do everything faster because we were in a hurry to catch the next plane. When everyone was done and the last people took an elevator down she just yelled run and everyone started to run to the gate on the other side of the Istanbul airport. One from our Finnish team had a painting that we actually got as a thank you which actually traveled in a bus alone to the airport because we forgot to take it. So you could see the painting swinging in her hand and the ones behind were just following the painting and running after it. Also the national team was cheering once we ran past them. The lady was just shouting how many minutes we had so we could make it. So eight minutes! And then one of the teammates were asking from the lady, what if we don't make it in time? And she just yelled back to her, seven minutes! 
We all arrived to the gate, but in the end we still had to wait to get to the plane. And when we finally went inside the plane, there was something wrong. So we were just sitting there for half an hour, all sweaty and red, without any water because of the security check. In total, we must have run something like three kilometers in the airport of Istanbul. Hope you enjoyed listening my story. Bye. <laughs> I am sweating thinking about Emma's story there. That sounded incredibly stressful. Funny enough, I had the same situation without the painting, of course. But like in Chicago, I had uh, me and my f- we like we were ten friends from uh, Latvia. Uh, we went for work, and uh, we had this um, so funny. We had like extra check, you know, when you know you check your bags and everything. And that was four of us, and we had two hours uh, difference between uh, flights. And like Chicago airport is like huge. Like I know Istanbul is already huge, but like Chicago was even, you know, American. And I was the last one. And I knew that like by the time I was already missed the flight, but I ran so fast. And then I, and I asked people, where is this gate? Where is this gate? It's so funny. And when I was like completely tired, I was like, damn it, I'm here. And everyone is just sitting and chilling around because, uh, the plane was um, late and then it lied one hour, two hours, and then it did, it canceled it all. And I was like, come on, guys, you can just read me, uh, give me a message. Come on. <laughs> there really is nothing worse than being stressed in an oh, airport, yeah. is there? That, that really isn't what you want. Um, let's go on to our next story then. And we're going all the way to Estonia with a story from Katlin. Hello, Europe. This is Estonia calling. My name is Katlin Merisalom and this is my story. It all happened in 2016 when Latvia held the European rally. I was a board member then of Rare Youth Europe and helped to organize this event as a team member. This is definitely one of the most legendary rally for me because during that one week, a lot of unbelievable moments happened. For example, if we have a look at the group photo, then all Estonians will notice that our national flag is upside down, which is quite embarrassing because I was the one putting that down for the picture. Secondly, we had an amazing tribal evening at the beach with drums and campfire, but it ended unexpectedly when we got stuck in the sand with the bus. Thirdly, during our final dinner, where we celebrated also 16th anniversary of Rural Youth Europe, a massive thunderstorm arrived and the roof started dripping all over the place. Fun fact, I got the nickname Estonian Mafia in there. Why? I have no idea, but Slavic squats were definitely not the case. Thank you for listening to my story. Catelyn from the Estonian Mafia there. Now, Patricia, I know you're going to have lots of thoughts on this. You're from Latvia. You were at that rally in Latvia, as was I. What were your thoughts on that story? It's uh, it's definitely all true. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's <laughs> What was the catch here? <laughs> yeah. Because... And it was in 2017. Mm. She said 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was potentially potentially a good spot. Um, 
the Latvian rally was clearly an incredibly iconic rally because especially that situation with the bus getting stuck in the sand that has come up several times on this (laughs) podcast before (laughs) yeah let's go on to our final story then and this one is from Hannah from Northern Ireland hello Europe this is Northern Ireland calling my name is Hannah Kirkpatrick and this is my story um, I was a board rep on uh, the Board of Rural Youth Europe um, three years ago and we were going to a board meeting in Brussels. Now I live um, just outside Belfast um, but we weren't actually flying from Belfast, we were flying from Dublin. I say we and the current board chair Lindsay Stewart was travelling with me. Lindsay lives in Belfast so I drove to Lindsay's house um, and we were then going to drive to Dublin together to get our flight. I got to Lindsay's house um, and we were getting packed and getting organised, maybe running slightly behind schedule. Um, but we got in Lindsay's car to head to Dublin Airport and it was at that time that I realised I forgot my passport to fly to Brussels. Now, instead of panicking and uh, admitting that we were going to miss the flight, we decided to head to Dublin Airport anyway and I rung my dad who uh, was in my hometown, Balamoney, which is an hour from Belfast and about three hours from Dublin. And he said he would bring my passport to Dublin Airport and I would meet him there. So my dad drove the whole way from Balamoney to Dublin um, to give me my passport, sparing me five minutes to get on the airplane. Um, I landed in Brussels. I rung my dad to let him know that I was there safely for him to tell me that he wasn't even home yet from Dublin. Um, It was a bit of a whirlwind (laughs) of emotions that day, trying to get me to Brussels, but thankfully I made it there for our Christmas board meeting. Oh, she got there in the end, but Hannah's poor, poor dad in that situation. (laughs) Right. Actually, this sounds so true. And now I'm thinking about the previous ones. Because I was so sure that they're definitely true. And then this one should be false. But now mm. I have no We idea. do get quite a lot of travel mishaps on this game. Yeah. We, we it, Obviously, out of these three stories, we've had Hannah and Emma having absolute nightmares in, in the airport. I would like to see people involved in Royal Youth Europe just get a little bit better at travelling. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Okay, then. So That's which so one funny. out of those three stories is the lie? Is it Emma's mishap in the airport in Istanbul? Is it Catelyn's trio of stories from the Latvian rally? Or is it Hannah's story where she nearly missed a plane in Dublin? Let's say the last one about Hannah. Okay, so you are saying that the lie is Hannah from Northern Ireland. Well, I can now confirm that the liar amongst those three was actually Catelyn from Estonia and her stories from the Latvian rally. (laughs) The stories were actually true, but she dropped her lie early on in the story saying that the date was 2016 and it was actually 2017. And you did pick up on that, (laughs) but you didn't follow it through. OMG, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) It is, you're right. I said it as well. You did, you did. So this is your first appearance on the podcast and it has ended in humiliation. It has, yeah. 
I'm not gonna come back here. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> joking, joking. Oh well, thank you so much, Patricia, for coming onto the podcast. You are a great sport. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, this is part one of two episodes all about the LGBTI community in rural areas. The next one will be dropping next week. I speak to MEP Maria Walsh. She talks about helping to set up an LGBTI network for MACRA in Ireland. And I also speak to young farmer Geffen Bickerton from Wales, who also gives us lots of advice on what we can all be doing to create safe spaces. And he shares his own personal story as a gay young farmer too. So don't miss it. Make sure you hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and you're following us on all the socials. You are listening to. You are listening to. You are listening to. Rural Voices. The Rural Youth Europe Podcast.